Hello and welcome to the ACAS podcast. I'm Sarah Guthrie. We are ACAS, the workplace experts. And today I'm here with Martin Short, who is Head of Wellbeing, Diversity and Inclusion at the Defence Intelligence Unit, which is part of the Ministry of Defence. We are talking about mental health today. And what we really wanted to do at ACAS was give real life examples of organisations who have headed this question of wellbeing face on and have created strategies and actions which have improved well-being in their organisations. So we're delighted to be joined by Martin, who we've worked with over the past year or two on mental health. Martin, to start off, I wondered if you could just explain what defence intelligence is, because I certainly did not know before meeting you. Sure, Sarah. Well, I mean, intelligence itself is really just the sort of art or the science um, of helping people make better decisions. And so defence intelligence is a large business unit within the Ministry of Defence and it provides an intelligence function for MOD. So it helps MOD and other government departments make better decisions. And we do that um, in order to enable um, military operations or or activities. Sometimes it's disaster relief. Sometimes it's provision of aid to other countries. But we provide planning information that actually helps um, the government run operations. Um, That sounds like very significant work. And I'm guessing it can be stressful for your employees. How did you get involved in wellbeing, Martin, initially? I think my journey really, I've done a number of different jobs in the MOD. I've worked abroad for the best part of a decade as well. And I sort of came to a point really, it was probably around sort of 2015 or 2016, where, you know, I've been used to sort of seeing, you know, the, the, the normal stresses that you get in any workplace really. You know, we've got staff have to work to tight, tight deadlines, particularly when they're working on crises. Um, quite often, you know, our specialists are only one deep. And so, you know, we can put quite a lot of pressure on particular individuals. And and also, you know, we've got the impact of constant change. You know, we're, we're trying to de- deal with emerging threats. You know, that the, the world doesn't stay static for any length of time nowadays. And so that constant change that happens within organisations, having to adapt to, you know, the macro environment as well, that can cause stresses for staff as well. Um, but I mean, I, I think there are also particular sort of issues within organisations such as defence intelligence because there are security concerns you know some of the material that we work with we we can't talk about and so if if staff have had a particularly stressful day it's it's not always possible to sort of offload to friends or families in the way that might be in other organizations in terms of effort to sort of destigmatize mental health you know such staff sometimes worry that if they you know fess up to a mental health condition it might in some way affect their security clearances and, th- and therefore their their job security so we have sort of issues like that but also you know we have to deal with some pretty unpleasant material from across the world you know we have to monitor the aftermath of terrorist attacks so sometimes um, our, our staff have to go through visual material which is potentially very injurious to mental health and that's you know where they certainly need a little bit of extra support and you know where we really need to sort of focus on helping staff develop the skills they need to manage their mental health more effectively. Mm. And so back in 2015 you were noticing these issues and wondering what you could do about them? 
I think I, I became concerned about the just just the lack of um, resources that we had in that particular area. So back then we, we didn't have a well-being set up within the organisation. There was no real sort of um, depth in sort of mental health support at all. And so we really started looking at um, different ways in which we could provide that support. I, mean, I, I actually became inter- sufficiently interested in enough to take an 18 months secondment out of the organisation. And I spent that time working with the What Works Centre for Wellbeing. So I, I did that. I came back to the organisation. I persuaded the head of the organisation that because of some of the challenges that we had, it was well worth investing in this area. And, you know, to his eternal credit, he he listened and um, we kicked that off in 2018. And we've been going ever since then, really. And so from that, the obvious question is, so what did you do? Well, we we actually dropped, you know, we we realised that we had to sort of learn how to walk before we could run with this. when we started, we didn't really have a corporate understanding of what we meant by well-being within the organisation. And in particular, you know, I think a lot of people thought it was something rather soft and fluffy. Um, and so there was a lot of work to actually expose the, you know, the current wealth of well-being evidence that's out there to staff and help them understand that well-being was something that mattered not just to individuals. It wasn't just a question of feeling happy in the workplace, but that there were hard business benefits to it as well so that that educate bit was really important because it just enabled us to get to a sort of common understanding of what by what we meant by well-being so we could then start to have better informed higher quality conversations now the other thing because we're dispersed across dozens of different sites I didn't know who was doing what at which site in well-being and so we, we had another activity that we called connect which was really just about identifying all the stakeholders who, ha- who had an interest in well-being and a- anyone who had an interest in well-being, we pulled together and we formed them into a single stakeholder group. And that was the community that I created to work with over the course of the, uh, the, the, the full programme. And then the final one was measurements. Um, we we recognised that the data that we had on well-being was actually very low quality. And we knew that if we wanted to make improvements, we needed to get some sort of benchmark from which we could measure. And so we actually used a tool that was developed by the What Works Centre for Wellbeing. And that actually created the benchmark we are now currently using to measure the effect of the interventions that we make as we go through the next few years. So that first stage of getting the basics right with its sub element of educate, connect and measure, that was absolutely critical to it. So there were those first phases of educate, connect and measure. Just on the definition of well-being, what definition did you end up using? I, I pulled it through from the What, what Works Centre for Wellbeing because it, it's nice and simple and it, it, it's well-being for us really is simply how we feel we're doing, you know, as, as a nation, as communities and as an individuals and, and how sustainable it is for the future. So it's very subjective in nature. And if you, if you think about it, um, you know, the same situation can produce completely different well-being outcomes in two different individuals you know one person might you know really like a particular environment someone else might not like it at all and so that subjective nature of well-being the experiential angle of it I think is a really important one to recognize you know we're all different and I think you know perhaps looking at the COVID experience you know you can see that some people have breezed through it without um 
you know, any ill effect whatsoever. Other people have, have, have had an absolutely awful time through it. So again, that same, perhaps that same sort of macro experience can have very, very different impact on individuals. And I think recognizing that well-being is a subjective experience and people can react differently to different situations, I think is a really important one to try and acknowledge if you want to do something about it. It's interesting, Martin, that definition of well-being. When I think of the MOD, I think of a, a macho culture. I'm wondering when you started that initial phase, did you get pushback on well-being as a word, either from employees or from managers who didn't think it should be a priority? Um I think it's it's always had a you know uh, until probably about ten years back I think it's you know well-being's had a reputation as of being something a little bit soft, fluffy, and intangible. But I think what has changed over the past ten years is just the sort of volume of research that's now starting to indicate that um, you know there are real connections between workforces that have high levels of well-being and much much better business outcomes. So. Um, you know, there's already lots of evidence to, you know, show that, you know, higher levels of well-being have an impact on performance, on productivity, on creativity, on resilience. And I think particularly for our organization, you know, we're, we're constantly having to respond to evolving threats. You know, there are, you know, we, there's a lot of uncertainty in our business as well. And so we want people to, to you know, to be innovative, to be creative, to come up with new ways of doing things. Because if we don't actually have a workforce that will experiment, will try something new, then, you know, we stand very little chance of being able to sort of evolve and, um, you know, meet the threats that are actually sort of um, uh, that are actually out there. Yes, I think, you know, I think the military does has a, have a reputation of being a, a macho culture. But I, I do think an awful lot has changed over the past you know, couple of decades or so. Um, so I, I do think the times are changing with that. But, you know, um, MOD is it's a huge organisation and, you know, change in any big organisation. It's, it's like turning an oil tanker. So it, it does take time. But I, I, I think we, we are heading in a good direction now. Mm, and you began trying to shift that oil tanker with these phases of educate, connect, measure. Moving on from that, what were the strategies or what were the actions that you took to improve well-being across the organisation? We did take a structured approach and I'll, I'll, I'll put in a plug for the ACAS mental health model because we found that incredibly useful. So for those who don't actually know what it is, it, it basically breaks down what can potentially be a very complex workplace well-being model. You know, when you look at well-being challenge in its entirety, it can actually be quite daunting. But what, what I did find that the ACAS model enabled us to do was break it down into manageable chunks. So that was to really look at, you know, what we could do to with at the individual level, what we could do at the manager level, and what we could do at the organization level. So the individual level was really about helping individuals develop the skills and resources they needed to better look after themselves. The manager level, it was about developing manager skills and awareness so they could better promote well-being at team level. And at the organizational level, it was about ensuring that well-being considerations are applied to policies, um, processes and structures within the organization. So we actually have a culture, the, a, a, a culture, series of cultural habits 
that enhance well-being rather than sap it. So breaking it, you know, that 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 complex well-being puzzle into those three chunks, we we found very helpful indeed because it it just made it a lot easier to manage. Mm, so thinking about someone who's listening to this, who gets that this is a priority what kind of maybe quick wins might they be able to put in place say in the next two months to six months that would really support their people's well-being in what is undeniably a very stressful time sure well I mean I think you know let's go back to the ACAS model with it because I do I do think it's helpful to look at you know what you can do at individual manager and organizational levels so I think the one thing that I think underpins everything else is is destigmatization. You know, I think organ all organisations need a culture where people have no embarrassment about talking about mental health. That you know, people are happy and comfortable talking to managers or mental health first aiders when they get into struggling territory and know that they're going to get the support that they need to get them you know up and running again as quickly as possible. So at the individual level, the basic framework that we use, and I think this is a really quick win for any organisation, is just adopting the five ways to well-being. This is a framework that's used um, really as the sort of you know core healthy habits sort of um, advice from the NHS. And it's really just a series of five habits or, you know, where there's a really good evidence base to show that the more you can build into your daily routine, the greater the sort of beneficial effect on your well-being. We did a mindfulness offer. So we partnered up with Headspace on that. Um, they produce some metrics every month. and I find that quite useful because I'm able to see what packs people within the organisation are accessing. And throughout COVID, the two big ones have been stress and sleep. So, again, that gives me a sort of a, a bit of an indication of the sort of um, support that staff are looking for from within the organisation. Um, it's not exactly a quick win, but mental health first aid, we've got we've got a network of instructors now. We feel that's really changed the dynamic on discussions of mental health within the organisation. So it really helps with that destigmatization. Um, at the manager level, probably a little bit more difficult, but I think anything that you can do to increase awareness and confidence of managers to talk about mental health issues. So whether that's mental health awareness training, mental health first aid training, all that stuff's going to help and I think the other thing in terms of recognition and reward where you do have managers who do that little extra bit to actually you know make you know the, the workplace environment you know a happier healthier more fulfilling place for staff then recognize them that's a very easy thing for organizations to do so if you've got a manager who achieves results by cracking the whip harder they're probably not the people you want to be rewarding and I think at the organisational level, you know, what we did was we made sure that wellbeing, diversity and inclusion were permanently established as routine agenda items in all our senior management boards. We put in a mandatory objective each year to encourage people to get involved in wellbeing and diversity and inclusion activity. And that, that also provided a me mechanism again to say thank you to those people who did that little bit extra, went above and beyond, you know, for the sake of their communities and their teams. And then I think the, the final thing that we tried to do, really not exactly a quick win, was um, actually incorporating well-being training in, in through career training. Mm. What strikes me listening to you is that you're not really thinking about mental health as this thing over here that happens in a box that you've got your mental health first aiders on to kind of, you know, sort the symptoms. You're thinking, well, what else in the organisation is 
increasing or decreasing the likelihood that someone feels good about their work and how can what action can we take to increase the likelihood that they feel good and recognized and valued in their work because you know that that will impact on their well-being I think so so yeah and I, I think also it is there's a little bit there on where you put well-being so you know I think a lot of organizations have thought you now well-being yes yeah, it's, it's about people isn't it so you know it probably naturally fits into HR but when you actually look at you know what drives well-being the cultural aspects I, I think it's far more sensible for organizations to look at treating well-being as a foundation stone of their culture you know it's it's, it's not a little hang-on that you put into sort of HR it, it is the very essence of your organizational culture so there is that need in any organization to feel that the workplace is fair that you know you will be recognized for you know for effort that you put in it's not it's not going to be claimed by someone else you like to feel part of something bigger knowing that your contribution is actually sort of helping and you know help, helping a much much bit sort of a bigger aspect of work and so I think you know that 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 positioning does become very important I think also you know well-being it's a, it's a sort of relatively late comer to organizations and I think initially a lot of the stuff we do is reactive so you know we wait for people to develop a mental health problem and then we try and fix it I think as well-being programs mature in organizations, um, they would be far better advised to actually start switching activity to the preventative. You're always going to need the reactive because, you know, we all have mental health. Sometimes we're great. You know, sometimes we're OK. Sometimes we're struggling and sometimes we're ill. But I do think that, you know, as, you know, well-being sort of effort matures within organisations, they're going to need to look a lot more at the preventative side of it. Thanks so much, Martin. That's been great to hear how you've approached wellbeing in such a huge and complex organisation like the MAD, breaking it down into those chunks and phases, thinking about what could support wellbeing at these different levels of the organisation, the manager and individuals. There's such a lot of food for thought in there about what drives good wellbeing and how culture affects that and, and how we need to shift from preventing poor mental health rather than just treating symptoms. So thank you so much, Martin. This has been the ACAST podcast. I've put links to some of the resources Martin mentioned, like the five ways to wellbeing in the episode notes and, of course, the ACAST model. We hope you find them useful and please don't hesitate to get in touch with ACAS if you're looking for help with improving mental health in your organisation. Thanks for listening.